This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is wonderful to be graced with your presence on this, another episode of The Wigs. I am your host, Jim Minns, and we will be joined, as always, by The Wigs themselves, Felicity Graham, Stephen Lawrence, and Emmanuel Kirkasharian. This is the only podcast featuring practicing barristers talking shop, and today we've got a special guest in our chamber's studios, barrister Andrew Bowe, who has just released his new book, The Truth Hurts. Stay tuned for an in-depth interview and a special excerpt from the book read by the author himself. Mr. Andrew Bow is with us. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. His new book is The Truth Hurts. It's an unflinching exploration of the fault lines in our justice system by an outsider who found his way in. It's a fantastic read, which I will soon find out about, I'm sure. Uh, but the Whigs have read it. Can I get some nods? Yes, I've read it. Everyone's Absolutely. read it. Thank you very much. Uh, the, the blurb says, thought-provoking and at times brutal, Barrister Andrew Bow spares no one, including himself, in questioning the notion of truth in our courts of law. And here he is in person, Mr. Andrew Bow. Thank you for joining us on The Wigs. Thanks, Jim. Thanks very much for uh, agreeing to read the book. Uh-huh. And uh, thanks to Stephen Manny and Felicity for having done so. Uh, just before we start you know, the interview, I think it's worth just describing the room that we're in. Yeah. Mm. Right? It's got history written all over it's it. It's full of art. Well, we're in Andrew's room, yeah. and it's full of art. Um, it's got two lovely, I don't know what you'd call them, pieces of art, like paintings, one of which says the title of the book in bright red, The Truth Hurts, which I think... It's a Richard Bell painting. It's a Richard Bell painting, an inspiration mm-hmm. for the book title. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. And, well, and Richard wrote, and he writes a lot of uh, art which have word art. I mean, the latest one that he's come up with is White Lies Matter, and I thought that was a a, a good mm. uh, analysis of what, where the conversations got to past Black Lives Matter. Mm. Um, behind me on this side is by Vernon R. Key, another Indigenous painter who uh, who I gave the video of the Palm Island riot to, and he turned it into a three-piece video piece that's now been bought by the Tate Modern as part of the first batch of Australian contemporary art. So, as I've mentioned in the book, um, artists are so important. In fact, they can say much more about things like injustice than we as lawyers can in a simple image. So, mm-hmm. in a sense, and the, the other artist from my daughter over there and over there who, who uh, is in her 20s and starting her art practice and, and already quite uh, politicised about the things that matter to her and her generation. Shout out to your daughter. What's her name, Andrew? Mia. 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 Yeah. Andrew, at the beginning of the book, you frame what is to come. You're telling of some of the cases you've been involved in where the legal process has failed and shaken your own confidence in the system itself. Why do you continue to participate in a system which fails in this way? Uh, Look, that's a challenging question that I'll try to be serious about. I mean, of course, like all of us, um, we've all got... I've got children to support till they finish their education, but you know, that there's a commercial imperative. But I think without continued disruption from the inside, nothing will really essentially change, um, even if it takes a uh, toll on individuals, not not me, just not just me, but you know, a lot of people uh, work within um, 
systems, whether it be legal or educational or health, in which there are many challenges. And I think there's continuing disruption from insiders. Uh, I, I, I think there can be a stalling or, or self-satisfaction that we take as a society that says no, our democracy works or our health system works. So that's one thing. But I did come across a Julian Burnside uh, uh, quote in an interview where he said, if you stop agitating, nothing will change, whereas if you maintain the rage, some things may change. And I think that's right. I, and, and I guess it's also the fact that even though this book does cover cases of the kind you've described, that's not my career. You know, my day-to-day uh, work doesn't involve necessarily all these issues, you know. So uh, it, it, this is a very small proportion of that, that history. Mm-hmm. So you also refer to a tendency in this country that – white Australia tends to quarantine itself from stories of injustice and perhaps as a way of forgetting or at least resulting in a kind of collective forgetting of injustices. And then you contrast that, and a lot of the stories that you um, talk about involve Indigenous Australians, and you contrast that to a collective sense of injustice which reverberates in Indigenous communities across our country. Apart from reading your excellent, if not confronting and challenging book um, and reminding ourselves of these stories, how can we guard against that tendency to quarantine ourselves from injustice? Well, you know, that's a, that's a big question as well. Um, look, I've got to be very careful in not speaking for Indigenous people, even though mm. many of my family are Indigenous and I've had association with some cases involving Indigenous people. Uh, I don't want to be seen as a person that's purporting to be expert on the plight of being Indigenous in this country. But I, what I have found is that uh, in the areas in which I've worked, there's, there's been a significant minority of people who have, have really accepted that responsibility to engage, not, not just engage uh, in a professional undertaking, not just addressing a political issue, but engaged at a basic level of treating the other as a human. And I think there's been a special disregard for Indigenous people by systems and also by a significant majority of people historically because there hasn't been much breaking of bread. I know in my life and experience that the times in which I can understand and empathise with how others are being is over a meal or getting to know their family or being within their homes. And that's what travel has brought to Australians, you know, going and seeing how people live, engaging with it and seeing the cultural significance of the way people live, even if economically uh, they may be living in third world conditions. So for me, the, the starting of the conversation is not about getting things politically right or legally right. It's about... Uh, treating the other as people. Um, the second thing is I think we need to focus on the current and next generations. The, the, there is a hope, I think, that my children and their children will be less constrained by these accumulated prejudices, and I think if we can encourage that greater discussion and education, that will that will be a good thing. Um, and the final thing is um, is that for us to not take ourselves too seriously as to what contribution we're making. Uh, it's, there's, a, there's a huge pool of issues that need to be engaged in this space, and I think if, if each of us can make our own small contributions in the work we do when we do them in relation to 
the engagement of Indigenous people with the, with the system, I think that makes a contribution. Mm. I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I, 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 it is something that's troubling for me that it's unlikely that this book or anything like this is likely to persuade most people to change mm. the way they feel about uh, the system or, in, in fact, about Indigenous people. Un- unless we can get to that point of having a personal relationship, mm-hmm. uh, things will stay fairly static. Hmm. So, Andrew, I was interested um, uh, in reading the portions of your book that relate to uh, the ALSs and legal aid, um, and obviously the three of us sort of spent extended periods at the ALS in Western New South Wales, and you talk about how um, in the context of under-resourcing, I think you say the choice is in is increasingly between being unrepresented or being represented badly. And I was kind of curious what advice you might have for a law student or an early career lawyer that is thinking about pursuing that sort of path early, like working at an ALS, for example. Um, like how do you, uh, in these days, do that in a way that you don't become part of the problem, I suppose, mm, mm. if you're looking at working in what is a systemically under-resourced mm. um, organisation or sector? Yeah, look, I'm really mindful that passages like that ha- have upset good people that work uh, in ALSs and legal aid commissions, um, uh, and, and that was not the intent. Um, uh, my question is more about... My point is more about... Uh, institutional and government responsibility when we say that our system of justice applies the same to everyone equally, whether or not that's a false paradigm when in fact the circumstances which attend Indigenous people engaging with the system is far more complex. The issues with which um, uh, people have to engage with requires... Um, not just a degree of bicultural competence, and you, know, you might get, you know, A to Z guide of how to speak to blackfellas or how to listen to blackfellas. I mean, that's a given. You know, you, there, there needs to be um, learnings about that before you even step into that space. Um, I would really encourage criminal lawyers who are lawyers who are interested in criminal law in investigating their capacity to contribute in those spaces. The problem I've I, I've come across is that uh, because the resources are so scant that young lawyers with very little capacity, they might be brilliant road scholars, but very little capacity are thrown into these areas in which summary justice, which includes jail, is being imposed by magistrates across the country um, for for offences, uh, for minor offence, minor offences, bail being refused, and, and etc. So um, my sense is it shouldn't be a place just for cutting teeth. Mm. Um, uh, it can do that it can do that but it shouldn't only be that place I also think there's a responsibility on more seasoned lawyers and more experienced lawyers whether or not they were trained in that area to go back and and make themselves available and there's some really good examples I think Phil Bolton from Forbes you know know, routinely goes up and does a season of working with Aboriginal legal services that sort of behaviour should be really encouraged and noted um, it, it, the troubling thing is, and as I've explained in one of the first cases I conducted for an Indigenous boy, um, I went into that case with no skills, no capacity and no real insight of my responsibilities to that client. 
And I suspect that's not an uncommon experience for criminal lawyers working in those areas. So what I was hoping to show uh, uh, by one example uh, is that there are really dire consequences for going in uh, underskilled and underprepared mm. and that we shouldn't tolerate that as a systemic provision of support for Indigenous people in the country. Mm. Mm. It, it's interesting. It's a shame that it upset, you know, upset certain people because, I mean, speaking for for myself and Felicity, I think, Flick, we thought about those issues the whole time we were at ALS mm. and there was constantly, constantly discussions in the office and among management about not becoming a ghetto and having to advocate for resources to make sure that you don't become part of the problem. So, yeah, and it's also a shame working on strategies to particularly work out like, how you can keep lawyers longer. Mm. It's a gruelling workplace, but there are definitely ways of making that work for communities by having people kind of come into a hub office, then go to a remote office, come back to a hub office, get the kind of... Well, from a out west perspective, have the sort of prospect of a potential move back to a city office at mm. some point as like a bit of a um, reward mm. for doing some like making a big contribution, not just sticking around for six months or so. Mm. And it um, shouldn't just be the responsibility of the lawyers. I mean, uh, if we're sending magistrates out there, I mean, let's look at the qualifications for some of these people. Yeah. Now, what experience mm. do they have in engaging in the cultural complexities of going into a community which is predominantly Indigenous. I mean, the fly-in, fly-out shows that we have all over the country mm. where, where there's a, a plane flying in with the police <coughs> prosecutor, the magistrate um, and even the defence team and where they're, they're chewing the fat in dinner beforehand as how they're going to resolve things out of expediency and time. I mean, the, it's a challenging responsibility that will not be met financially. Right, we're, if we're weighing up the resources needed to 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 supercharge the criminal justice system for Indigenous people, for people that rely on legal aid, it's just a speck compared to the sort of money we spend on def- on defence and the like. So, or the amount society puts investment in things like football and sport. Now, I'm not a wowser. I love all that, but unless we collectively say, "Listen, if we actually want to have a society that's inclusive." and fair, we've got to look where we apply our resources. And that was more my point. Mm. Uh, put the fo- foot soldiers in there, yes. Give them the training, yes. Give them the support for mental health issues, giving the traumas that they will encounter in that space. And rotate experienced lawyers going in there and also rotate the judiciary, you know. I mean, the fact, the fact that we've had more women appointed to the ju- judiciary has undoubtedly improved the level of justice in this country. So greater diversity on these courts, people with far greater experiences outside of, you know, chamber practices uh, in civil litigation, becoming appeal court judges who are deciding cases of extreme cultural sensitivity. Just being intelligent and scholarly is not enough. You need to have a perspective that owns who we are. Mm-hmm. Where we we are a society that lives off the riches of this land that's been stolen from a, a from a community. Unless we invest in that idea and recognise that we have to do more than what we've done because all of us have participated in a system and the statistics are getting worse. Mm. So none of us can be smug and say, look, we did this time four or five years somewhere or two or three months somewhere and somehow we've made our contribution. It's not been enough. Mm. There needs to be more engagement. Yeah, and the system is paying lip service to this problem of Aboriginal overrepresentation when 
you've got this situation where the ALS is funded federally, whereas mainstream legal aid is funded state, and ALS is getting a third of the resources. Mm. I mean, it's just an absolute disgrace. Mm. And it's getting and it's worse. Lip service. Yeah. Like it was, your experience there, I think, was worse than mine. Mm. There was more funding when it was the Western ALS as opposed to this one giant ALS for the whole state. And people used to stay on because there was benefits. You got your long service leave after five years and things like that. Mm. And it's all gone Well, if now. we think back to episode one of season one, we kicked off that episode yeah. one of the with one of these major issues, which is the legal aid funding crisis yeah. and mm. funding of representation in criminal cases for indigent accused. And that's, I think, because it really struck us as being a really important systemic issue to confront in our times. Mm. Andrew, you mentioned um, in that answer that one of your early experiences as a lawyer was acting for this young Indigenous guy in a trial where you were underprepared, um, it didn't go well, there are dire consequences um, in a scenario like that. And I just wondered why it, it struck me um, as quite an important aspect of the book that you were prepared to lay yourself bare and acknowledge mistakes or acknowledge failings of a personal kind. But I just wondered why for you it was important in the context of criticising the system to criticise yourself as well. Um, Look, if you're going to be as pretentious... uh, to sit there and write a book and call it The Truth Hurts. <laughs> you're going to have to be willing to put the microscope on what you've done yourself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I think um, the few things I've learned uh, in doing this stuff is along the way we all see things like you explained when you were at the ALS's, things that were really standing in the way of you doing the things as well as you wanted to do. Uh, in the course of my working life, um, each each mistake or case has took, taken me to another space. For example, um, after that case, I, I, I didn't want to uh, stay doing criminal law, but I convinced myself that it was still worthwhile to doing it. Not long after it, I undertook a case concerning Robin Kiner, which is in the book, which is the first case... Uh, certainly in Queensland, if not, if, if not in Australia, that really examined the whole notion of uh, domestic violence and how it can be used to inform defences for women killing men after decades of violence. And, you know, in that case, uh, you know, the address to the jury uh, went for six minutes on a murder charge and the uh, the trial itself took two and a half hours for the evidence to come out and she was quickly convicted by the end of the first afternoon. And, you know, I got criticised for using that description of that trial when I got involved in the in the appeal. And that appeal examined the sorts of things that we're talking about, the, the reasons why there's so many fault lines in that sort of case. See, from that, I, I then... A lot of legal aid lawyers were then saying, what are we going to do? How do we increase the resources? The daily rates are being reduced. Now they're doing compromised ways in which duty lawyer services where people were tendering... Uh, their service for one dollar a client on the basis they could get a self referral, and I found that uh, extraordinarily difficult for me to stay participating in a system. And most of my practice in those days as a solicitor was legally aided, 
unless I started agitating what to do. So there was a provision in our Crime and Misconduct Act in those days where the CMC, which is like your ICAC, had a statutory responsibility to investigate uh, the sufficiency of funding of legal aid agencies in the DPP in Queensland. I started a series of correspondence about all these failings and these examples and mistakes, etc., and then judicially reviewed, well, require, asked the CMC to do this statutory function. They refused, and I judicially reviewed in my name as a litigant, and it's a case cited in an admin law these days called Bo v CJC for the students out there, but as to the standing that a practitioner might have in reviewing a government decision. I've always wanted there to be change, and to recognise that, you have to change within yourself, and you mm. can't do that unless you're willing to strip bare your own vanity about these things, you know. And, you know, when you're younger, and I certainly uh, took first-class honours in vanity, I, 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 I was blind to not facing these things. But when I was writing the book, and as I say, having a title like that, I thought it was really important to include that in the very beginning. So mm. people would stay with me in the conversation and not think uh, that it's uh, an arrogant recital of war stories, which mm -hmm. I hope it doesn't come across as. Mm -hmm. No, it so doesn't. Do you, think it, do you think it becomes easier to be honest about your failings the more you realise how flawed the system is? I've never thought of it that way, uh, Stephen. Um, no, I, 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 well, there may be an overlap. There may be an overlap. We can always blame somebody else for what we've done wrong. I mean, it was not the system's fault that I didn't read that brief. That was my failing. Um, it was not the system's fault that counsel in it hadn't identified the legal issues properly. It wasn't the system's fault that I didn't have the wherewithal or guidance to take a, an appropriate narrative to determine whether the issue was consent or identity. I mean, all of these things are, are things that all lawyers should know before they do any case. I didn't, you know. And so uh, because it was such a stark level of mistakes, I don't think I'd say that that was contributed to by the system other than that somebody qualified me to do this case when I should have been. Mm. You know, so um, I'm not sure if that answers your question mm. either. No, it um, does. Mm. Andrew, you represented Ivan Malat, convicted killer, someone who has been convicted of some of the most heinous crimes in our country's history. Um, so before Flicky asks a really intelligent question, could I just ask what was he like? Look, I've, I've been asked this before and um, I would find it difficult uh, to think of a more um, easy, polite client from whom to take instructions and to act for. Uh, I mean, I'm like 25 years younger than him, but for the entire time as a, of the retainer when I, when I was about 29, he would refer to him as Mr. Bo. Uh, he uh, was polite to a fault. Um, uh, so if you're talking about what's he like as a client, mm. um, uh, uh, unexceptionable. You know, there was nothing in the way in which he and his family provided the financial resources in the early stages to providing overall assistance to run the case. I'd, none of that was difficult. Mm. So did you form a view about his guilt? Uh, form a view about his guilt. What, then or now? Then. You know, it's funny... Um, I was hindered by this notion that, uh, you know, criminal lawyers uh, should adhere to some basic 
tenets of our system to operate in it. You know, the presumption of innocence, the onus of proof, reasonable doubt, all those matters. So, and, and further than that, the notion that he ought to get a fair trial despite having already been convicted by the media. I mean, those were the challenges that me as a young lawyer uh, spent most of my intensity focusing on. Should I have been thinking about his guilt? Probably not. Mm. Um, should any criminal lawyer think about the, so, the objective guilt of their clients? Probably not. Uh, I, I, there's a few things I've learned from this process is that we can all be surprised uh, about the way in which uh, evidence unfolds. And remembering that the central thesis for my book is that the criminal justice system is not in, intended to get to the truth. So your question is it about was he truly guilty or whether he ought to have been found guilty on the evidence is a, is a, is a nuanced one. Um, should he have been found guilty on the evidence as I understood it to be? I think there was an argument for acquittal. Um, whether that informed whether in fact he was guilty, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So has it ever troubled you how easy it has or hasn't been to suspend judgment um, in dealing with a person like that? I think most of us in our ordinary lives suspend judgment about most things. Most of us are in denial about what's going on. We, we, we don't think we're as fat as we are. I mean, we think we're taller than we are. You know, we spend most of our lives juggling our delusions, don't we, about how but good we are. It's a special and long project to spend years dedicated to the defence of someone who tortured and killed and murdered all these people. Like, has it ever troubled you that you were able to to spend all that time with him effectively suspending judgment? I, 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 perhaps I misunderstood what you mean by suspending judgment. Um, like uh, not turning your mind to that ultimate question of whether he's done those things. I think you have to as a criminal lawyer. I, 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 I thought you meant suspending judgment as in uh, 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 deflecting the truth um, or not... not coming to turn to the truth. Um, uh, short of somebody giving you instructions as to particular aspects of a Crown case that they accept or not oppose, I, I, I think a criminal lawyer would be failing in their duty to their client to form judgment. Um, that doesn't mean you don't make an assessment of the strength of the case mm-hmm. and provide advice and instructions of the utility of pleading guilty or of not disputing facts in a contested sentence, or trimming down a trial so that only the real issue is being litigated, of course you've got to do that. It'd be silly for a professional to not have regard to how the ultimate decision makers, whether it be the judge on sentence or a jury, in relation to the facts that you know will come before the court. But as you know, the whole process of filtering what comes before the court is a very finely tuned forensic, skillful one. So... uh, the team that I'd assembled were uh, what I could gather as being the best of the best, and it, which is proven to be right because nearly everybody in my team has become a judge or has been a judge. You know, so they, these were clever lawyers that we had mm. assembled, um, and and we focused our attention on our brief. What's the evidence they're going to put before the jury? And the Crown had enormous resources. You know, they. Had, Every time there was a, a fact and issue, we get 50 statements about a particular fibre found on a particular, you know, bench that was somehow related. It was a very complex circumstantial case. Um, so I, mean, I was still upskilling. I mean, th- those areas of law were new. DNA was still new. I mean, 
I, I didn't have time to sit there and think, oh, well, is he guilty mm. and therefore can I do my job? No, I just focused on what we were retained to do. Mm. Uh, in the end, um, I, I, I think what, what I'd like to say is that we, we provided an honest defence for a person against whom some would say had an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence against him. The jury were out for four days, you know, but I thought that was a bit of an achievement. Mm. Mm. That there must have been some doubt uh, about some aspects of it. And I've engaged in the book uh, about one aspect of the the eighth count, which was the person who um, was not killed, and the relationship between that and identity of the offender. I, I think that was a real legal issue, you know, and had it gone our way, then the prospects may have been different. Mm-hmm. So you tell this story, Andrew, which I think pops out of the book as quite a compelling one, although there are many, um, where you're in the cell with the legal team and with Mr Malat and you're exhausted and you fall asleep on his shoulder and he is kind of cradling you during the legal conference um, as you're there exhausted by the work that you've been doing on the case. How does that um, or has that kind of involvement, that close um relationship with an accused person over such a long time, someone who's accused and then convicted of these really um, heinous acts, has that caused you to reflect on the nature of evil? Um, I don't think I'm that sophisticated, to be honest. (laughs) Um, um, uh, Evil takes so many forms. Um, there's evil in households where men bash the crap out of women and children and rape five-year-olds. Mm. What is the you know gradient of evil? Um, uh, He's pretty high on the gradient, isn't he? Well, he he killed a lot of people, and and there's evidence that suggested that it was um, uh, horrific. Yeah, and mm. I, I've tried to uh, do justice to the families by not reflecting too much on some of those yeah. things. Mm. And and, and uh, I'm hesitating because I, I don't want this conversation to be flippant about those sorts of things. Um, and I have reflected uh, about the continuing impact of, upon those families. I mean, it would be inhuman of me not to do so. But the reason why that case is included in the book is pretty obvious. I think if I'd written the book after having done that case and not included it in there, that would have been seen by some people as being cowardly. cowardly. Um, so I've kept it to a minimum. And I've used uh, that example of the case to talk about the duties of lawyers to clients and the presumption of innocence. And that's really the focus of why I've done it. But why I use that, why I wrote about that one incident is that um, I question whether or not humans are so-called evil, or rather humans are capable of evil things. And I suspect uh, most of us are capable of deception. Most of us are possibly capable of evil conduct. But we resist that by a sense of humanity. And I wanted to end that chapter by recognising that for all his sins, he was rightly punished uh, by the system after the finding of guilt. Um, And he had almost no human contact uh, until he died over 25 years. Um, yeah, so one, sorry to cut you off there, Andrew, but one part of the book that I didn't quite understand in terms of how 
this could possibly arise. So his punishment seemed to extend after death to the extent of his family not being permitted to go to his funeral. Mm. Is that extraordinary? I hadn't heard of that kind of the, the extent of that, of punishment extending to that. Yeah, I, I, um, and that's why I've ended it with, with those questions. Um, mm. I, I, I was trying to demonstrate that a person capable of, of the conduct of which he was convicted um, was still a human being. Um, he treated me as a human being. I fell asleep on his shoulder. Um, uh, and yet um, the systemic response to it was pretty tabloid in the sense, you know, there are many people that do horrific things. Mm. Um, but to, to in your dying days, for the family to be punished by not being able to even see him, leave alone attend his funeral, um, when I think that was a fairly inhuman act. Um, but, you know, uh, some would say, you know, he, he of all people deserved it. Mm. And there's a place for that degree of disregard for humanity by our system. And mm. I tend to disagree with that. But mm. uh, that says as much about us than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, the system should be better than that. Mm. Yeah. I think so. The- this is such a light conversation, you guys. So <laughs> I was told that the Wigs was the number one podcast a couple of weeks ago because of the inside and levity of these <laughs> Three insightful barristers. Uh, I'm the one who brings it down. Just <laughs> I would have sustained it. Yeah. Can Someone I just add? To switch to Vaudeville. I'm Quick. so glad I didn't read this book because I would just be fucking this podcast up right now. <laughs> Please continue. So, Andrew, at the other end of the spectrum of criminality, we have offensive language or swearing at cops. Um, can you tell us a bit about your case of representing Lisa? And your thoughts on offensive language still being a crime? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lisa's case was not the only case that engaged me as a young solicitor. Uh, when when I was frequently showing up at you know the arrest courts and just watching uh, homeless people, blackfellas, kids being charged with in those days uh, what they call the trifecta, you mm. know. Uh, swearing at a copper and then resisting arrest and then being charged of assault and then being locked up in the boob overnight and then even getting jail after that. And in Lisa's case, she was walking home intoxicated uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning um, where there was nobody around in a uh, back street of Bris Vegas and three coppers come along and uh, say, you know, they knew her and say, Lisa, we're going to take you to the drive station. She said, I'm not going there. Now, they had no power of arrest. And then finally... Uh, they grab her and she said, look, fuck off, you cunts. And then the police officer, a young woman, arrested her. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, she stayed overnight in custody and then a magistrate convicted her and gave her three weeks jail. You know, I, am, I remain offended by that course of conduct. I, I'm surprised not more people are offended by that, you know. And, and the, the, these, these things add to the statistics that we're talking about. Mm. It's not just resources. It's this, this, this discretion. The very language that you and I would hear when we're going to a football game, we go to a judge's chambers, you know, the expletives that are used in general conversation in civilised society to sit there and, and incarcerate people for that. The coincidence is it's that, that same provision in the, so, the old Vagrants Gaming and Other Offences Act in Queensland was the provision that 
was used uh, to arrest uh, um, Cameron Dumaji on Palm Island. Mm. He was arrested for singing out Who Let the Dogs Out, you know, a popular line out of a song Mm -mm. by a police officer said, I was insulted by that because I thought he was calling me a dog, and they arrested him, and 45 minutes later he's dead. So it's a provision that's engaged my interest for a long time. So I took uh, Lisa's case to the High Court. We didn't get specially, but... but, um, the, the sentence was reduced to time served, um, uh, which unfortunately was a week, you mm. know, mm. by the time the appeal provision went in. Um, and there was another case, as, as explained in the book, that uh, had the same special leave point, Coleman and Power, which went on to change mm. the law on these areas, right? But in one of the things in the research in doing those cases, because there was, I think my firm was doing half a dozen of them, and we just took that one to the High Court. In the second reading speech of the Vagrants, Gang and Other Offences Act, the Home Secretary declared, and I'll quote, It has been found in the past that, unfortunately, there is a class of white men who are prepared to live in Aboriginal style with black gins. I do not care whether a man be a prospector or whatever one may call him, whatever one may call him, he has not lived up to the principles of white manhood. Now, that's offensive, Right. Uh, that's more offensive than a, a, a drunken person telling the police officer to fuck off and leave me alone because you're uh, arresting me. It, it shows to me the divide you know, mm. be, be, between the way the law is drawn and remembering these laws were intended to, to create spaces for non-Aboriginal people to be not be disturbed by the uncouth behaviour of by these blacks. They have boundary streets, which meant that after the sun went down, people weren't allowed in these places, cafes, etc., where white people say, well, we're entitled to degree of civility. We don't want all that behaviour. You know, it's an offensive history, in it, but it's not that long ago, mm. you know. And, and I challenge people to examine some of these examples in the book and see how they feel about the, the comforts in, within which they live and how they feel about how the laws, which don't affect them, they're immune from them. Mm. Um, where I'm immune from that behaviour. You know, I think it would be highly unlikely if I was swearing while I was talking to you walking down the street, even, even if I was doing it angrily towards you, that I would be arrested because I had a suit and tie on. Mm. Um, so th- anyway, I, I could carry on, on, on about that way more than the time permits. Mm. So what do you think... It says about our system that the High Court was tied three all, I think, um, in the Monas case about five years ago, on whether it was unconstitutional to criminalise mere offensiveness. And so that question has not been determined. The law that was under challenge uh, was upheld because it was tied three all. Uh, What do you think it says about our system that notwithstanding that thousands of people across the country are prosecuted for this offence um, all the time or every year, that our superior courts are still yet to determine in a conclusive way the constitutionality of criminal offences that criminalise mere offensiveness? I mean, you pose the question rhetorically. I mean, the answer is obvious. I mean, the, the system, if it cannot provide a guidance, provide guidance to more junior members of the judiciary on a provision that that catches so many people with limited resources and and that these lawyers, namely judges, exercise their discretion without the guidance of our most senior court as to whether in fact they can be doing it at all, well, that's a, 
a failing in the system, isn't it? And mm. it may be a failing because of the way in which matters were argued, maybe a failing in the way in which special leave tests are judged, maybe because they're overworked. I mean, there, there's so many aspects to it. Just because something's socially dramatic doesn't make it legally complex or mm. legally interesting. So I'm not being critical of any of the particular judges, but the system is not always able to provide the guidance necessary to make uh, uh, the life for these people at the very bottom end of society uh, have a life that uh, is not too much intruded upon by individual exercise of discretion, sometimes by zealous police officers who, who themselves are hindered by the lack of education within which uh, they are to police into communities. You know? mm. I noticed when you were describing the process of preparation for the High Court in Lisa's case, you said you sent draft submissions around to anyone that you knew might care about it, retired judges, senior silks, um, people who might give you some suggestions for how to edit your writing and so on. And I was just wondering about your kind of – practice as a lawyer, obviously being a solicitor is quite a different or can be quite a different mode of working Mm. to working as a barrister, which can often be much more solitary. Um, But it struck me in that case and in in some of the other cases that you've talked about, and I know that you've been involved in, you often try to surround yourself with a team of people Mm. so that you're not working alone. Do you prefer that collaborative mode of working compared to a more solitary mode? Can I answer that in three parts? As to the example in the book, um, I'd never argued a special leave case at that stage and I was still a solicitor and even though I had done uh, a reasonable amount of uh, appellate advocacy, I thought uh, getting support from those who'd done this a lot was useful. Uh, In particular, Bill Pincus, who by then had retired from the Court of Appeal from Queensland, he argued uh, uh, the case... uh, concerning, um, the name just escapes him at the moment, but the one that's always cited as the, uh, quote, um, Mr. Neil is, Neil and the Queen. Oh, Mr. Neil is yeah, entitled yeah. to be an agitator. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so B- Bill's son had worked with me for a while and he lived a few doors down the road. So that's why I engaged him. As to the, your general question of the, the craft of being an advocate, now and having been a criminal lawyer for a couple of decades before, um, I've always collaborated and that's probably because I've never even now had the confidence that I had all the skills and capacity to meet all the exigencies of any particular argument. Mm. Um, I've, you know, some of my skills have improved a lot, you know, so it's not a false vanity about that, you know, um, uh, a false um, humility about it, I should say. Um, it, it, it's simply that I've always come across some people that are much better than me at some things. And legal research is one in particular. And, and I've found that sometimes the best legal researchers are the ones that have never practised, who can just get into the black letter without all the hindrances of being a practising lawyer. So I used to always get the best of the brightest applying to work as clerks in my practices. They have gone on to become silks and judges, in fact, but at that early stage, they had that skill of being able to work through a legal question unhindered by practice. So that's why I looked for others that can complement what I was trying to do. Um, I read 
somewhere in a, a profile for one of my one of the profiles for this book, where a retired president of the Court of Appeal, uh, Margaret McMurdo, wrote that uh, or told the interviewer that you know Andrew you know sometimes taken up these cases and and try to disrupt the legal conversation and run arguments that have really annoyed judges, uh, but she acknowledged that sometimes I actually got up, you know. So in order to, I've always thought my, to me, my best attribute was I was always willing to look at how should something be. Now, that won't always reflect what the law is or how it is said to be in the eyes of judges. So when you're, when I'm talking to the Court of Appeal, as I did in Lisa's case, and I, you know, said, you know, it's profoundly unjust to be incarcerating somebody for swearing at a police officer. The blank faces I was met with would say, well, can you cite some authority? I said, well, you are the authority here. Mm. You know, just because 75,000 magistrates have done this for 100 years doesn't mean that the essential point I'm trying to say is hasn't got some currency. In, in order to support that, we had to have an enormous amount of research around the world about Aboriginal swearing rituals right through the way Native Americans have been incarcerated at high levels with this. So I was trying to engage in a conversation that was much broader than the technical meaning of a provision. And for that, I've always needed support. Now, the third part of the question is, these days, um, I have develop a healthy dose of misanthropy. I don't like many people. This is probably the most people I've had in a conversation for a long time, and I'm not including those listening. Um, uh, so I much prefer to work by myself uh, physically. Um, I like the lonely task of trying to get to the Rosetta Stone in a case, you know, but I also know that in every case now that I still do, I'm always appearing with several lawyers and... Um, and it might be an anxiety issue. I just feel more comforted that more people are agreeing with me on my side of the bar table. <laughs> <laughs> it's to stop all those voices in your head who are agreeing with everything you're saying. You know, it's better to have them live. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to seduce you, Felicity, to work with me on our first case together. I know your resistance is profound, but I'm hoping after my persuasion in this podcast that you're going to agree. <laughs> um, and Felicity Graham, what is your answer? <laughs> well, I've got what a few more questions there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a few more questions, some process questions. How did you actually write the book? Did you start writing at the time, reflecting on your thoughts when you were running these cases? Did you go back to court records, old briefs? Did you go back and speak to any of the other protagonists, your clients? Um, um, look, the, the short story is I never, ever thought I would write a book, nor did I set out to write a book when I first started writing the first story. The first chapter in the book, as I've explained in the introduction, was a process of cathartic undoing of a lot of uh, noises in my head about a case that never really quite left me. Uh, a, a, a suicide in the Simpson Desert, a resultant... Uh, act of traditional punishment and a negligent act that caused another death, a, a manslaughter trial of people from a community that walked out of the desert in the 80s and being tried in front of an all-white jury in Perth. To me, it just exemplified in a stark way how disconnected the system is for some people. So that thing stayed in my head for a long time and I bored and bothered nearly everybody I ran into whether they be filmmakers, writers, who want, wanted them to do something about this. But I thought this is something Australians generally should know. 
about what happened to this couple in the desert. And, and nobody, everyone was interested because uh, it is an interesting story, uh, but nobody really did anything. So my partner, who is a filmmaker, said, just write something, write it down. And I did that in between preparing cross-examination in murder trials to writing appeal submissions over the course of about a year or two and just one chapter. I just sat there and worked on trying... And I did have to go back to transcripts, go back to the anthropologist reports, etc. And once I'd got that fairly well-tuned and the version in the book is fairly close to what I had written, I put it down. And um, it's only after I was reminded by my partner that uh, she said, I think you should go back to writing a bit. You're far more sufferable when you're distracted by your writing. So, okay. So then Therapy I just, for you and for your relationship. That's true. And, and then, you know, the remaining half a dozen or so, I just started thinking about various cases in which these sorts of themes and issues were around. And, and she's I, – I obviously had bored her with a lot of these stories myself when I was courting her and telling her how amazing my life had been. <laughs> um, fell, the, fell on Ivan Mladz. Which it took a long time to persuade, but um, so many of the book, the, the the stories are the ones su- suggested by her and by other colleagues. And when I set about doing it, I generally went to the judgments first and to r- remind me of the cases that had been involved. And then when I could, I'd go back to uh, the transcript as well. And then where they involved real people that I still knew, I'd send them to them and see what did you think. And they'd say, well, actually, you got it all wrong. It was this. And I'd, oh, yeah. And so I'd, I'd try to get it as close as I could. At the same time, I was very mindful that many people wouldn't want these things written about them. So I, you know, changed names and changed some facts which don't bear on the issues like occupations and and uh, cities and towns, etc., like that, just to make sure that – there's not a lot of that, but just to make sure that identification was almost impossible, other than the cases in which it was already on the public record about, like, Ivan Milad and Pauline Hanson and things like that, I, I could stick to the full story. Uh, and But I've also tried not to get too legalistic about anything, you know, and that's where I had a lot of help um, after my uh, – I'd ran into somebody at a party and she was a literary agent. She said, look, let me have a look. And two weeks later, I've got six publishers saying, willing to pitch for your book. And I thought it had all been done by then. I thought, okay, hand it over and here's your book. No, But it took a long time after that, a year or so, with a fantastic um, uh, uh, editor you know, who who really, really showed me, Meredith Rose is her name, and, and uh, he really showed me how not to write like a lawyer had a right in a way that sometimes people might want to read it, you know. So, um, I mean, I'll leave it for you guys to comment, but whether or not it's more readable because it's not stuck on legal principles. It does try to explain them, a bit like how Anthony Green explains electoral process. You know, I've tried to explain in a way where the nuances are still there, uh, but it's not too unwieldy. Mm, Well, for my part, it was really powerful storytelling. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. So why does the truth hurt? Um, um, I think um, most of us, um, and I'll speak mostly for myself, we spend a lifetime deflecting the truth because having to face mistakes and what we've done and how we go about doing things is hard to accept. You know, and I've mentioned before how easy it is for us to think that we're slimmer, taller, 
nicer, more decent than we in fact are. So the truth is always something that we're deflecting. And and the second thing is, it's not a tr- hurt that's just to you personally. I mean, we, we are all diminished when we deny the truth, especially in the context where we as a nation for for so long um, denied the falsity of terra nullius and set up a platform of property law in this country. Now, native title as a project is unsuccessful for many, many Indigenous people. So the, the truth is we are a country that was set upon by a colonial power and set about to create a system that was there to privilege those who they were and only to address things that they saw were important. It did not even contemplate the notion that women would have equal rights. It did not contemplate the notion that there was an indigenous culture that was here well before we, uh, before the colonizers came. And in generations and generations of migrants, including myself, enjoy the riches of this platform of really pillaging this, the resources of this country for our material benefit. So, uh, for me, I hope what I'm trying to explain is that if we're going to set about having the pretension to say that we want to set things right, unless there's some expression of acknowledgement or identification of truth, acknowledgement that there is such a thing in these areas and embrace the responsibility to address these things, it remains a very hurtful experience for many, many people in our community. So that's in essence what I... And that sounds horribly earnest, I know. Um, but I figured that if I was going to write a book, I was going to make sure I included as many Indigenous stories in it that I could without people switching off, coupled with cases that obviously attract the attention of others, like Millat's case, Hanson's case, and other cases uh, to you know, dealing with you know, uh, issues of consent and rape cases, which to cover a broad picture. But my essential sense was to write a book that my children could uh, recognise as being an area of work that addressed the world they face and the world they have in, ahead of them in circumstances, as I've admitted, uh, that there was so much uh, time I spent away from those responsibilities when I was doing this work. Mm-hmm. So in the end, it was a very hurtful uh, experience for me to be engaged in this system, and hopefully I've put that behind me. The book is called The Truth Hurts. The author is Andrew Bowie. He's with us right now. Uh, it's available on all book platforms, uh, Dimmicks, Amazon, I've Abby. noticed. Ab- yeah, everything. everything. Yes. It's got five-star reviews on every single platform that it's available I've on. I've been very busy. <laughs> yeah, right. Using right. various pseudonyms. To- <laughs> well, congrats on that. Success. We'll have to get your tips on that for our podcast reviews. <laughs> I thought you did do that. Well, I, do, oh, I, right. I do see the self-promotion that... Mr. Lawrence is uh, oh, he's the king. capable of. They call Someone's got to do it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not going to be me. <laughs> Mr. Andrew Bowe, uh, you're a very busy person. You've, you've lived a fantastic life. I'm going to be finding out all about it in my fun thing. Thank you for sharing your precious time with us on the wigs tonight. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Jim, and thanks uh, very much to Manny and Felicity, and thanks a small bit to Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> As promised, here is a special excerpt from Andrew Bowe's new book, The Truth Hurts. I started writing what became the first chapter of this book to reflect upon a case I'd handled in 2011. 
the details of which still sat uneasily in my head. It involved the violent deaths of a young couple from a community in Kirikura in Western Australia's Gibson Desert. Putting down my thoughts about this case was cathartic, so I kept writing about others that involved either an avoidance of the truth by the justice system or the clumsy juggling of it, pantomimes in which I too had played a part. Yet, Australia's criminal justice system was not designed to seek the truth. It may have been designed with good intentions by the legal scholars of the time, but they were mostly male and planned only for the world they knew. They did not see what they chose not to look at. Nor did they have in mind the diversity of people who now encounter the system they devised, let alone those who are disenfranchised by it. This system has hardly changed over the century or so since Federation. Its edges have been tweaked by incremental reforms, but some aspects are due for a fundamental rethink. If truth-seeking is not the premise for the Australian trial process, what is? When it is suspected that a crime has been committed, the prosecution agencies assemble the evidence gathered by police and place it before a court. The presiding judge decides which parts of this evidence can be admitted, that is to say, used to prosecute the case. And because the rules governing admissibility are complicated and involve the exercise of discretion, they are regularly debated by the prosecution and the defence. The evidence ruled admissible by the judge is then put before a jury, and the way in which this is done remains largely as it was in the 19th century. It's adversarial in nature and can be a blood sport at times, dominated by theatrical aggression and certitude, sometimes smoke and mirrors, all of which can get in the way of the truth. Trial judges are not supposed to investigate what happened outside the evidence presented to them. They can only decide what may be admitted and how the jury may use it. Following these sometimes unwieldy directions, it is the jury's task to decide whether that evidence is enough to prove the charge. If they convict, a review court only assesses whether they did so reasonably, not whether they got the verdict right, let alone whether they got to the truth. The standard of proof, paying homage to the presumption of innocence, must be beyond reasonable doubt. The onus of proving guilt rests on the prosecution. Jurors are prohibited from later revealing the reasoning for their verdict to anyone. So, while witnesses brought to court must take an oath or an affirmation to, sell the, to tell the whole truth and nothing but, it's rare that a trial uncovers the whole truth. Where justice is done within this framework, it can at times be incidental. Juries are as fallible as any other group of human beings. Critical witnesses can get things wrong. Sometimes they do so mistakenly, some deliberately lie. Life-affecting decisions in court can come down to disputed evidence concerning a momentary lapse in judgment, or to a single witness being believed or not, or to an undeclared prejudice held by a witness, a juror, an investigator, a lawyer, or even a judge. Unsurprisingly, the truth about some crimes is not uncovered for many years. There's another common thread in the cases in this book, the idea of equality before the law. Our jails are populated by women who've been treated badly and unfairly in a society run largely by men, by the poor who've struggled with invisibility or disregard, by the intellectually impaired and the socially outcast, and, most of all, by Indigenous people. 
It's undeniable that the justice system is more difficult to navigate if you are poor, not white or not white enough, not a male or not formally educated. I've found that outcomes in courts are often patriarchal, parochial and class-based, premised as they are upon imperfect human reasoning and subjective analysis and tainted by biases we all hold. Is it naive or even foolish, therefore, to assert equality before the law when social equality in a practical sense does not exist. Australia's most senior judges have made it clear that none of us, if charged with a criminal offence, are entitled to a fair trial. Rather, at most, we're entitled not to face an, an unfair one according to law. It is not necessarily unfair under our law, for example, for an accused person to be unrepresented when facing a serious criminal allegation even while the prosecution is armed with all the resources of the state or commonwealth. The system relies upon the judges and lawyers involved in individual cases ensuring that a trial does not become unfair, something not always achieved. The establishment of legal aid commissions and Aboriginal legal services during the Whitlam era was intended to address the disadvantage of those unable to pay for representation. It was an enlightened initiative but bar associations and law societies now perennially decry the underfunding of these services and the compromised representation that results. As the resourcing of the system grows increasingly political, with the major parties adopting populist tough-on-crime agendas, it's likely that, for the indigent accused, the choice will increasingly be between being unrepresented or being represented badly. The, dis the discrimination against Indigenous Australians by the justice system, their disproportional representation in prisons, the appalling number of deaths in custody and the limited reaction to these things by governments have made a deep impression on me. I was slow to grasp this institutional mistreatment simply because I wasn't looking. I then got to know blackfellas personally through my work and started to recognise the harsh realities of their plight. Around the same time, I met the mother of my future children, the youngest daughter of an Irishman and a bachelor woman from what is now called Fraser Island. Jackie worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Brisbane and had adopted an Indigenous boy, left with her by a teenage client. Before we met, she also had another boy of her own, a beautiful blue-eyed blonde blackfella who lit up all of our lives. When our four daughters came along, I saw acutely what all of them faced in this country with their varying and complex genealogies and histories, the shades of brown in their faces, the slight slant in some of their eyes. This book starts with the case that prompted me to write, the couple who died within hours of each other in the Gibson Desert. It also looks at the violent killing of Cameron Dumaji in a police cell on Palm Island in North Queensland. In a series of court hearings, some criminal, some inquisitorial, the system failed Cameron and his family while the national spotlight shone in their isolated community. The human cost of them has been immeasurable, but after only a decade and a half or so, the case has been largely quarantined and forgotten by white Australia. Yet similar losses and a collective sense, sense of injustice still reverberate within Indigenous communities across the country. I finished the book with an unsettling case about an, in, an Indigenous child left at birth at a hospital in Alice Springs by her mother. A four-year fight over her ensued between two white women who took her into their care and her Indigenous maternal grandparents. 
The overt representation of Indigenous people in our watchhouses and prisons has for at least the past three decades been described as a national shame. A catchphrase more recently also applied in lip service to the plight of women killed or maimed in domestic situations. This rhetoric is meaningless alongside the continued worsening of the situation, the glacial change in attitudes and the lack of systemic reform. Now, children are being held with adult prisoners in police watchhouses for months at a time because there are not enough places for them to be separately detained. My work has meandered through these issues, first as a solicitor and more recently as a barrister, but there has been no grand plan to it, and it would be a mistake to read me as a self-styled do-gooder. I am not. I have many fault lines of my own, some of which will be evident in this account, my career has mostly been that of a well-paid, sometimes overpaid, hired gun, often representing clients who are despised. Child sex offenders, rapists and murderers such as Ivan Malat, whose case I include here. Police stations, courts and prison cells are rough places where bullies abound and no one gets to choose who they're in there with. Yet most people take little notice of what goes on there until they or someone they know has been thrust into the system. And then even the rich and well-connected can be shocked by the arbitrariness. That said, most of us won't ever have to face the fact that a criminal conviction, whether correct or not, destroys lives other than that of the convicted. Or the fact that acquittals rarely spare the accused and wreak havoc on complainants whose evidence has not been considered sufficient to convict. And the outcomes in some trials remain a stain on our community's sense of itself. Whether someone wins or loses in a court of law, not always a valid dichotomy, is infused with luck. We tend to forget the degree to which our own security, even our sense of it, is the product of good fortune, starting with where and to whom we are born. And of course, the colour of our skin. We can all be guilty of hypocrisy and schadenfreude when others falter or get caught in the headlights. While not a memoir, this book does include personal experiences that informed the lawyer I became. It does not cover all aspects of the justice system, nor does it claim to have answers for the problems it raises. But I hope it might be the starting point for a discussion about the changes needed if the system is to better serve our community's increasing complexity. This is a discussion that Australians in general, not only lawyers, might well be concerned with. We may like to think of ourselves as the land of the fair go, but to uphold such a claim we must address that which the men of the past chose to disregard. That is not to say, of course, that the legal process never results in justice being done. There are many such examples some heroic, some unacknowledged. But those cases where it fails can shake our confidence in the system itself. These are some of the cases that have tested my own. Chapter 1. The Common Law. Two mobs, no treaty. I received the brief for the Gibson Desert case in September 2011, a couple of years after I became a barrister, having spent the previous two decades running a solicitor's firm in Brisbane. The Western Australian case that I'd appeared in before this one had taken me to places I'd not heard of, small towns and communities in the deep northwest, where relations between whites and blacks were stalled in a colonial time war. Each involved blackfellas killing blackfellas, alcohol-fueled acts of violence 
in traumatised communities where lives seem to be held cheap by governments. This case was same-same but different. It involved a young couple, Christiane and Damien, in the town of Kirakara. Her people were from Kintore, close by in desert towns but across the colonial state border in the Northern Territory. They'd met seven years earlier as children in Kirakara, Damien's home community, and had lived there since getting married Desert Way. Two children had quickly followed and then unexpectedly a third, further straining their living conditions and their still young relationship. Damien's people had walked out of the desert in the 1980s, making their first contact with White Australia. Their descendants now inhabited 10 housing commission dwellings in Kurakura where First World Vices had taken hold and whole families had been wiped out by influenza. The place was, remains, a dystopian nightmare. There were occasional visitors, mostly white fellows providing government services, missionaries and the odd curious grey nomad. None of them stayed for long and only a few tried to understand the Pintupi or Luritja languages or bothered to break damper with the locals. Alice Springs, on the edge of the rest of the world, was 850 kilometres east, about 10 hours' drive in the dry season. One night in that September of 2011, Christiane had been playing cards at home with Damien's sister Coralie and a few others. Damien was out and about. The older children were still eating, but the baby was asleep in a plastic laundry basket on the floor, bundled up in a towel. When Christiane whispered to Coralie that she was stepping outside for a smoke, her sister-in-law simply nodded. The card round finished and the next hand was placed on the table. These are the details I pieced together from the brief of the police evidence that I read in the comfort of my Sydney chambers. Fragments of information which, along with some googling, led me to picture a scene. A quiet Kurakura night, only the wind in the, in the trees as Christiane smoked outside. A waning moon, a cloudless sky, the desert lit by stars. The smoke from her cigarette ash to the cork filter, hanging in the air before the chair tipped. The lowest bough of the huge ghost gum took her weight as the cord gripped her near the vagus nerve. There was no thrashing, barely a sound from her, only the murmuring of the tree. Shortly, but still too long afterwards, Mervyn, a close relative of Christiane from Kintore, arrived at the house and asked after her. Some at the card table looked up, but nobody answered. No one seemed to know where she was, nor was anyone greatly interested. Coralie, standing in the kitchen with the baby on her hip, then recalled that Christiane had gone out for a smoke, but Mervyn had already sent something outside. He cupped his hands around his eyes against the kitchen window. Through the reflected fluorescence, the lone nucleate curled protectively around a shape that came in and out of focus under the lowest branch. Mervyn went, ran wildly down the steps, kitchen hand and knife. He had to be quick. Christiane's small frame dangled like a discarded puppet. He righted the chair and stood on it while the others who followed stopped short. She was featherlight but it took Mervyn three goes to sever the extension cord she had hidden under her eagle's footy sweater when she stepped outside. The wind had died now. It was still and cold. The card game was abandoned. Sally, the community nurse, was called. 
She hurried from the service compound in her nightgown, but there was little she could do. She rang the emergency number at Alice Springs. They would come tomorrow, maybe the next day. They told her to put it in the fridge. Sally later wrote on the death certificate for the coroner. Hanging. House 6. Kirakara. 9.30pm. 13 September 2011. When Damien arrived home, he saw his wife lying on the ground under a towel. She seemed even smaller. A shoe propped up her head, not quite concealing her creased neck. His wailing started, softly at first, then guttural moans punctuated with an increasing pitch. He drummed his head on the dirt as Sally and others looked on. Mervyn's younger brother, Tristan, had been out driving the, the town circuit with Christiane's little brother and he now pulled up at the house as Coralie slipped past with the baby. Out the back, he fisted Damien hard in the head, knocking him to the ground once more and shouting in Pintupi, She was your wife, and she was your responsibility. You brought her here. Sobbing and already broken, Damien got up to run, but didn't. There was nowhere to run. They would all say he was to blame. He stumbled to his grandfather's house, He must have heard his baby crying as he passed house two, but he didn't stop. Fragments of detail about the end of a life. All the things that were not known. What had driven this young mother to such an act? But it was what unfolded after the death of Christiane that paralysed me. Although Tristan, in his early 20s, was younger than Mervyn, he felt keenly that he had to stand up as a man in the situation. Christiane was his direct kin. He thought of her as a sister. After punching Damien, he went to House 9 and sat with other kintour people, including Mervyn, Christiane's sister Tracy, her husband Michael and their cousin Xavier. As I read the statements taken by the police, some of these names jarred. Who had given them these names in a place where few blackfellas spoke English? Surely they weren't their birth names. Had they been used by the young constable because he found their real names too difficult to pronounce or spell? I still do not know the answer. This grieving group was upset and growing increasingly agitated. Someone had to be punished for what happened and it was obvious this had to be Damien. Christiane was gone and he'd been responsible for her. They were all getting wilder and wilder. Gananuri and Gananuri Puka as their statements to police later put it. And they knew they had to act quickly before word reached Christiane's family across the desert. It was Tristan and to a lesser extent Mervyn who took on the Ganyuri role, who got wild enough to assume the duty of inflicting retaliatory punishment. While Mervyn too was only in his 20s, they were the senior men here. The group walked down to House 6, Damien saw them coming and stepped outside. Those in the other houses who who were awake, and there were more now, came out to look. Tristan strode ahead as the rest of them paused. Damien was seen to flinch at the sight of the knife in his friend's hand, the same knife Mervyn had used to cut down Christiane, but he tried to stop crying as he held Tristan's gaze. The blade appeared huge, and Tristan's skinny legs, which tapered to an almost calfless lower leg, wobbled. Which one? he asked Damien. The left one, 
Tristan swung the knife, barely not looking where it struck. The, the graceless blow immediately fell Damien and Tristan turned and walked back to his kintor mob. One stab was enough, he thought. It was more than enough. The knife had cut through skin and muscle and nicked Damien's femoral artery and he must have sensed something was wrong as the blood gushed out, pooling in the dirt. But he didn't say a word and within minutes he was unconscious. His heart stopped pumping as his body deflated. His grandfather walked over, but Damien would not have felt his comforting hand. His spirit chased Christiane's to the southern sky. Whispers across the small settlement were swift. Before long, almost everyone knew how badly things had unfolded. A short time later, Sally placed Damien's body next to his wife at the back of the supermarket cold room, then made another call to the police in Alice Springs. The couple made a pitiful, peaceful sight. The now orphaned children asleep in someone else's bed were yet to learn of what had happened. Once he took in what he had done, Tristan headed to his house. The others in his vigilante mob dispersed, fearing more reprisals. Tristan couldn't later remember who had given him that knife, but now he threw it into a pile of soiled dishes in the kitchen as he went to, went to bed. There was no one else in the house. He tried to sleep, but his thoughts made, made it difficult. He'd never used a knife like that before. He'd not thrown a spear for years, and never at anyone. He had never been involved in payback before, or even seen any situation calling for it. He tossed about, inserted earplugs, and listened to some heavy metal in an attempt to settle. He woke worrying about being taken from the desert for the first time. The bodies of Christiane and Damien were driven to Alice Springs in a refrigerated van. Their children stayed with Coralie waiting for the social workers to come knocking. A few days later, Tristan was charged with Damien's murder. There was no report of this on television or in newspapers or social media. Tristan was taken in a caged utility to Eastern Goldfields Prison near Kalgoorlie Boulder more than 1,800 kilometres away. The police at least stopped to let him have a smoke and some water whenever he rattled on the back window. He had no expectation of bail. A field officer from the Aboriginal Legal Service in Perth was sent to see him. Both men were Indigenous, but neither spoke the other's tongue. Sitting in the desolate jail with other mostly Indigenous men, Tristan assumed that he was already being punished for what he'd done. Being taken away from his place and his kin was whitefellow punishment. The concept of a court trial was foreign to him, as was a jury. Tristan had no idea that he was to be judged by strangers and that no one from Kirikara or Kintore would even come to see what happened. When he was eventually told about his trial, he learnt that it would probably be held in Perth, a place he'd never heard of, let alone been to. He had heard of saltwater people, but had never tasted the sea. The Truth Hurts by Andrew Bow is out now from Hatchet Australia, and you can purchase the book in any good bookstore or online at hatchet.com.au. You can also follow the author Andrew on Twitter at Andrew B-O-E, the number one. 
And while I'm at it, you can follow The Wigs on Twitter at Wigs Podcast or on Facebook at The Wigs. Mr. Andrew Bow with us again on the wigs, the the honor, the fifth Beatle tonight. Here he is, Pete Best. Um, so I, I, I brought some colour. Yeah, well, mate, much needed. Um, can I just say uh, we're going to finish off as we always do with fun things. Go around in what is this? Is this clockwise? I don't know. Anti clockwise. Anti clockwise. The the uh, formidable. I don't know. I've got no. Idea. Is it anti? Yeah, it's anti. The uh, the formidable Felicity Graham. What's your fun thing? Well, I am a very lapsed member of a Saturday morning swimming club at Coogee Beach, and I'm thinking this weekend I might dip my toe in the water for the first time. Getting back into it. Back back into swim season. Is there any COVID in the ocean? No. 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 Doesn't work outdoors. Oh, cool. Cool. Fantastic. Congratulations. That's awesome. Oh, okay. That ain't spread it. Mr. The Very Relaxed Emmanuel Kirkusharian, you certainly do appear so. I'm going to need you to be a little closer to the microphone so that we can hear. Your I'm fantasy- hiking the National Trail. I have something oh my to do. Gosh. National Pass. I actually have something to do this weekend. That's incredible. Yeah, it's about five hours. It's, you know, wow. It's a to walk, but it's a beautiful walk. You go past Wentworth Falls and, you know, is this nice stuff. Is this the Manly to... No, no, this is in the Blue Mountains. Oh, okay. And it right, right. was carved about 100 years ago into the side of the... Mountain. Yeah, right, 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 right. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Finally got a fun thing out Something. of it. Something. That's great. Stephen Lawrence, what do you got? So my fun thing, and I can't believe that no one else has used it, is uh, that tomorrow night I'm attending uh, online. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> New South Wales <laughs> Civil Liberties. <laughs> Council for Civil Liberties. Gala Excellent. On dinner, but at the Gala t- online <laughs> dinner. Yes. At which there is an award presentation. Oh yeah, for are you up for the something? Civil Liberties Journalism uh, 2020 Award. Right. Excellent. For in which civil the liberties Wigs journalism, and not not to be confused with the Civil Liabilities Award, not in which to be we are that. also yeah. nominated, I believe. Mm. Oh well, that's great. Well, I hope you I hope you win. And we we're all attending, my, in fact. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. Drinks on my drinks outside my room. Can I just say uh, we won't we'll know the winner by the time this is going up. Yes, definitely. Okay, so. Congratulations. Yeah. Commiserations. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, so. I, I, I know you guys got close, but no cigar. Yeah. Right. Oh, well. So and if, to be nominated. Yeah, if only you had the prescience to have got your best podcast up and running before the awards. <laughs> hell, Bo, you, may, you? you may have had a chance. Should have re- written this book earlier. Uh, Mr. Andrew Bow, the Pete Best of the night. What's your fun thing for the month ahead, the week ahead? Yeah. What are we doing these episodes? The two weeks ahead? Yeah. Anyway, what's your fun thing? I, I have this thing of coming up with new things to do and researching them the fuck out of them, right? Yeah. Seriously. And and uh, I'm committed to becoming a hiking camper so I can chase Manny. I know someone. But I've done all the research and I finally took delivery of a super lightweight uh, hubba bubba tent. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I've just not yet found anybody brave enough within my family, namely Sam, to come with me yet, but we will. <laughs> we will do it. And so the super fun thing would be to persuade her okay. to, to come camping. Okay, but you haven't – there's nothing organised in no, the No, no, okay. no, no. I did set it up in the living room the other day and showed her and said, come in here. What do you reckon? Yeah. And on the cement 
heated floor. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Away from the elements. Yeah, sure. But So that's my hope. That no, I, awesome. Some of that investment will come to some fruition. Well, look, my fun thing is to finally read The Truth Hurts by Mr. <laughs> Andrew Bow. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Wigs, it has been fantastic to have you all in, uh, in band practice tonight. It's great. Really feeling it. Uh, everybody have a great month. We'll see you at the next episode. You too. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here for the final time. I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings from Ireland. This is a quick taste of what to expect from the Tommy and Hector with Larita Blewett podcast. There's about there's rubbish and old hurlies and everything in the utility toilet. And I'd be sandwiched in there and I'd just go... And someone then I can hear someone in the kitchen going, I'm in here, by the way! But I remember visiting your house as a teenager and none of your toilets had locks in the door and I'd often be wandering out from the kitchen and hear your mother shouting out, <laughs> I'm in here, by the way! <laughs> Just let anybody who's passing know I've I've been here, by the way. (laughs) Listen to this show on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast. 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 Acast.